did you, kid? I'm Charles Foster King! Hey, Stella! Suck on this. going on everybody this is wrong real it's a podcast for hardcore cinephiles where we tackle everything from jean-luc godard to jean-luc picard and today's guest they say never to meet your heroes but if you're a longtime listener you've heard me mention him and his show in the past but we have the great daniele boyelli he's a history professor an author a martial artist the host of two podcasts and most important of all a great big fan of conan the barbarian but today we're going to be talking about last of the mohicans one of my all-time favorite movies that i grew up on so mr boyelli welcome to wrong real thank you so much for having me when we talked about you possibly coming on conan the barbarian was a topic that you threw out there but i think if i talk about it anymore people are just going to unsubscribe entirely but maybe at the end of the episode we can get into the riddle of steel and uh, your interpretation of what is the uh, what is the answer to that eternal enigma i'll tell you just a tiny quick conan the barbarian story um how i never had a chance basically so conan the barbarian came out when i was eight years old and um so my dad italy had a weird system back then i think they may still have it now it's you know it's not like US that if it's a PG-13 or if it's uh, R-rated or whatever, if your parents take you, then it's okay. It's only if you go on your own that they don't. You know, it's very rigid. Like they had a 14-year-old and 18-year-old, and I think Conan was 14-year-old. And doesn't matter if you're the Pope takes you, they don't care. If you are under 14, you don't go see the movie. That's the end of it. And uh, we decided to try anyway because I really wanted to see it. Even though, of course, there was no chance in hell. There was just no way to make it happen. And so we get to the theater, and my dad pulled off the greatest acting job ever. He went into a, but no, we come from so far. It wasn't written in the newspaper. And the guy's like, but it is written in the newspaper. No, it wasn't. <laughs> oh, my God, how is it possible? And the, he milked it so good that the guy was like, you know what? Just go inside. 
I can make you pay. He's like, my dad is about to pay. He's like, nope, can make you pay because that means I saw you and then I broke the law. So can make you pay. You guys just leave beside me. I didn't see you. So go ahead. So I got to watch Conan highly illegally and for free when I was eight and that. Well, I strongly prove I'm a little bit younger than you. I saw it at the tender, impressionable age of five in the company of my father as well. I was just shy of my sixth birthday. I was horrified and enthralled and mesmerized and it, it left a lasting impression. And it's a movie that I keep coming back to and eventually got into the Robert E. Howard stories and yeah, wearing right. my Frank Frazetta t-shirt. I love the, uh, the paintings and that sort of thing. So yeah, I, I'm a fan of that whole world. And the fact there's only one movie like it makes it all the more precious. Right. Yeah. Cause the sequel and all the other stuff didn't quite hold up. Speaking of Frank Frazetta, I'm going to turn to my wall here. Beautiful. Excellent. I, 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 I wholeheartedly approve of your decoration. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Fire and Ice. I, I, I loved his collaboration with uh, Ralph Bakshi. I wish he had done more animated films. But if you ever want to talk Frank Frazetta, we can talk about that as well. But I don't want to get too derailed sure. talking about this because we will go down that rabbit hole and I won't come up for air. Uh, but for people who've been listening to the podcast, I do need to thank you because I did a recent episode about the show Rome. And the first time I even heard about the show Rome was when you gave it a shout out on your show. And then Victor Rodriguez suggested as a possible topic. I was absolutely enthralled, but I do want to try and recommend people to check out your podcast, History on Fire on Luminary. You did a brilliant episode recently on sex in ancient Rome, and it's not titillating, but it's riveting, and it was an absolutely fascinating ep. But is there anything you want to share about anything you're working on right now as an author, professor, podcaster? You mentioned before we started recording, you actually might be turning your hand to fiction. Yeah. So the two main things that I'm playing with these days besides teaching college uh, History on Fire, which if you have never checked it out, you can check it out for free. There's like some 50 episodes out there on iTunes or most other podcast uh, platform. And then if you really, really like it, once you're done with those 50, then there's a bunch of other episodes that are kind of premium subscription. I think it's like four or five dollars a month on Luminary. Um, but yeah, if you just want to check it out initially, that's the way to go. And then, yeah, I started uh, one of the topics that I tackled in uh, in History on Fire is um, the life of Italian painter Caravaggio, who was a straight-up gangster in the literal sense of the word. I heard that episode. It was fascinating. Yeah. And so I wanna, um, I'm very intrigued with doing a historical fiction about him. So that's, uh, that's what I'm going to be playing with. Um, As a fan... My dreams that not only do you publish a great book, but that three or four or five years after Netflix brings you on board as a producer and you turn it into a Netflix series. That would be the gig. Even because the life of Caravaggio is so spectacular. It's so, there's everything. There's amazing art, there's violence, there's sex, there's drama, there's all sorts. It's phenomenal. It's just uh, the raw material there. It's perfect for TV. Hell yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's shift our gaze to the French-Indian War in this remarkable movie. Now, I know cinema, and I fancy myself a bit of a film historian, but you're an actual history professor, and I don't want to get, I mean, if we tried to capture the entire era in a few words, we would never actually get to the movie. Sure. But for people who perhaps who love Last of the Mohicans but are maybe a little green when it comes to the actual history, is there anything you want to share about just the, the backdrop or the setting in which this movie takes place? Well, that's the thing that I find the most fascinating about that historical time period. And I think the movie does a great job capturing it. 
is that unlike what happens later on, at this time in history, there is no dominant power in North America. It's a messy meeting of uh, a whole bunch of different native tribes, each one breaking and making alliances to essentially to, to suit their needs, to do what needs to be done for their people. There are, there's the French government, there are French traders, there's a remote English government. I really even saying English doesn't fully capture it because each one of the colonies is jockeying for power, sometimes at the expense of the next. So Virginia and Pennsylvania, for example, are kind of rivals. You know, they're both technically English, but they are also fighting, not exactly openly fighting, but they are competing with one another for territorial expansion. So it's uh, it's a mess. It makes it fantastic because it's truly the frontier. You know, later on in American history, the frontier will be uh, U.S. expanding and native tribes being pushed uh, further west. The frontier is just one line. This the frontier is not a line. This the frontier is the entire area is uh, a meeting place where people are trading physical objects, they are trading ideas, they are trading cultural trades, they are trading DNA, since there's a whole lot of intermarriages, particularly between French and natives, but occasionally with the English too. There's, um, I find it phenomenal because it really captures this notion of uh, a universe in which nobody, there is no one set culture, there is no one set power, there's no one set way of doing things, but everything is being negotiated with among people with very different cultures. Yeah, and I think the movie, I mean, obviously it dives right into that where you see indigenous people fighting oftentimes on both sides of this immense yep. struggle between the French and the English, which is just one small front in this much larger war, the Seven Years' War. But obviously, this is a battle for the future of North America in, in a lot of ways. Of course, as Americans, we always think, oh, the, the French-Indian War, and we're focused on just that one part. But it's part of a much larger struggle. Yeah. And in the midst of all this chaos that you're describing, you get what is like the most passionate love story <laughs> like, uh, of the entire 1990s, and where it gets gives me goosebumps even talking about it. Go ahead! The bloody hell punish this! I want you to go! If we go, there's a chance there won't be a fight. Stop powder! If we don't go in that, there's no chance! None! You understand? Coward! You've done everything you can do! Save yourself! If the worst happens... You stay alive! If they don't kill you, they'll take you north up to Huron land. You spit, you hear? You strong! You survive! Stay alive, no matter what occurs. I will find you. No matter how long it takes, no matter how far. I will find you. What for you makes an epic? Because for me, when I think of the word epic, it has to be sweeping, it has to be stirring, it has to be grand, there has to be some romanticism, but there has to also be some gritty realism. But for you... What are the, the ingredients that go into making a film or a novel or a piece of history an epic story? I guess I'm going to tackle that in one second. I realized that in what I said earlier, I, you know, it's true all of the, what I was saying regarding the cultural context, but I didn't tackle probably quite enough the what you were writing point in the larger historical context. Another thing that becomes fascinating is once 
these people are caught in these struggles between empires, between the French and the British, is that, as you mentioned, these become part of a much larger conflict, which in, is highly underrated in history. Like You hear a lot about the American Revolution, you hear a lot about later conflict, you don't hear as much about the Seven Years' War. I mean, yes, if you're a historian, but not exactly at the average party. And and yet, when you look at it, the Seven Years' War, if you want to be technical, that was the very first world war before there was a World War One, because it's a conflict that will be fought in North America, will be fought in Europe, it will be fought in North Africa, will be fought in Asia, everywhere where the French and the British have colonies, which is pretty much all over the world, they will be fighting it. So it. It's on an epic scale because it's not even like World War One when it happens some hundred and sixty whatever many years later, seventy years later. It happens at a time when communication is much slower, and yet it's happening on a global scale. So it's uh, it's a wild one, and, and North America is the spark that starts the whole thing. You know, the conflict begins in North America and then expands to the rest of the world. So it lasted so, until like 1762-ish thereabouts? or Yeah, they signed the peace treaty in 1763. So, so the French and Indian War part, the, the American component of it is uh, 54 to 60, uh, um, 1754 to 1760. And then uh, there's three more years where there's some conflict and eventually peace treaty in... Um, as far as the sphere of the world, of the whole war worldwide. Gotcha. So getting back to epic, what what for you is an epic? I feel like the word is used pretty casually. Yeah. It's used pretty frivolously. And I think we all have our, our own ideas of what an epic is, but what, what how do you define it? I think it needs to be, it needs to raise, uh, to touch some emotional chords that leave you breathless, that leave you feeling like, wow, what did I just watch? And of course, this is one in what's epic to one individual may not apply to the next and you don't share the same judgment because, of course, there is a judgment call in it. It's not purely objective. But there's for one, I think it's important. You cannot have an epic without phenomenal characters. Epics are character driven. They are not just uh, big events that you look from afar. They are super intense, great characters caught in a much larger tale that's so, so you have both happening. You know, you have a great story in terms of something dramatic that's happening that affecting a wider context, as well as powerful, intense characters that act within it. So earlier you mentioned Rome. To me, that's a perfect epic. You have the characters, you have the great story. Uh, Conan as an epic quality. Of course, Lord of the Rings as an epic quality. You know, there are a bunch of, but you really cannot think of an epic that doesn't have great characters. It just doesn't work that way. Yeah, I mean, whether you want to get invested in Magua or Hawkeye or whomever, there are just so many characters where you can kind of hang your hat. And it's funny, I I get very emotional about the story because I've been watching them my whole life. I grew, While I live in New York now, where the story takes place, it was actually shot in North Carolina, but I was living in North Carolina at that time. And then the story became an enormous source of state pride. And when people would go on outward bound trips, they would hike through all the areas where like where the climax would unfold. And this is one of those movies where with my family, anytime it's on, even if we have to go somewhere or hit the road or whatever, we're locked in, and we're watching this movie from from uh, from beginning to end. And it's funny at age forty four, after I've been watching it for twenty eight years, when I was watching it yesterday, 
I actually, it actually made me cry twice. Yeah. <laughs> Just incredible. So for me, the word epic absolutely applies because it has all the sweeping grandeur. It has all the epic conflict, and it's got all these astonishing characters at its core. And the more times I watch it, the more it climbs the ranks in some of my all-time favorite movies. I think it... It's not popular to say, but I think it's Michael Mann's strongest film. A lot of people like to point to Heat or some of his other films, but I guess my my favorite film by Michael Mann yeah. is The Last of the Mohicans. Yeah, me too, hands down. Even though, if we have to go into the Michael Mann thing, I have one of the things that really bug me about the movie that otherwise I find perfect is that Michael Mann couldn't keep his hands out of tinkering the, with the it. The four cuts of it, yeah. So, whereas the theatrical version was phenomenal and i believe the vhs version was exactly the same as and the, the theatrical. cable version in the 90s the vhs and cable cuts were the cuts that we saw in the theater exactly and that's to me in fact it's probably the only movie that i still watch on vhs because uh, the dvd version he tweaked it multiple times each time taking out things that were to me some of the funniest lines in the movie, some of the great. So I was always like, ah, oh, man, it's still a great movie, but why did you have to touch it? You know, it's I, I can't think of too many examples of movies where I, a later version where they do some tweaks. Coppola keeps doing it with Apocalypse Now. He's got several versions. Right. And Friedkin did it with The Exorcist. But for me, if I talk Sam Peckinpah and The Wild Bunch, where a movie gets taken away and recut, I'm, I'm, I rejoice when it gets restored. Sure. But with this film, we have four versions. The three-hour version you presented to the studio that they sent back to him. The original 112-minute cut. We've got the 117 1999 Director's Expanded Edition, which most people dislike. And then you have the most recent version, the 114-minute Definitive Director's Edition, which is kind of a hybrid between the two. So yeah. it's closer to the theatrical experience we crave. But sadly, that original theatrical cut is tough to find. Yeah, that's uh, that I found frustrating because yeah. there were two great lines in there that I remember. I was watching the DVDs and I was like, "Hey, where did that line go?" That was uh, and uh, and that. But at a certain point, these movies belong to the world. They belong to the fans, and the fans crave that emotional experience they had. And it's an intense such, for such an intense emotional experience. If you don't get those beats, it can make you fly into a rage. Like, wait, oh, yeah. God. so I, yeah. I sympathize with your plight. Yeah, but yeah, regardless, phenomenal movie. Just um, I wish uh, he had left it at the theatrical version. Yeah, he's got enough other projects that he's working on where he can keep himself busy with all of his other films that he's working on. Well, let's start cracking this movie open. I, I think easiest place to start, Daniel Day-Lewis, completely invested in the character, went through enormous outdoor training, and basically became this character who was drinking what he called concrete in order to pack on the muscle. But when it comes to Daniel Day-Lewis and the character of Hawkeye, how do you feel? He did a phenomenal job. I mean, as an actor, hard to think of too many actors in that period of time who were doing a greater job investing themselves into the characters. Um, what I find interesting is that if you look at... Um, Hawkeye as a character in the books versus the movie. You know, in many, many cases, you always hear the stories like, ah, the movies are never as good as the book for people who are fans of the books. I read all the books. Man, there's not even a comparison. The movie is so much better than the books. It's not even funny. Well, as soon as you DM'd me and told me that you didn't like the book, I lost all my 
morale. And so I stopped reading. I guess I'd already read like 10 or 20 pages. And I was like, oh, if he doesn't like it, I'm, I'm bailing. I got, I got other things I could do. So sadly, I, um, I, I probably shouldn't have uh, given up so quickly and so easily. But uh, it was part of my preparation to at least read some of James Fenimore Cooper's original text. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's not. I also went in with high expectations, so which is always a bad thing when you approach any form of art because you think it needs to be this thing, and then suddenly you start seeing ways in which. But beside the storyline, even if you look at, even if we just stick to Hawkeye as a character, in the books is this really puritanical, weird dude who there's, you understand that he's a tough guy, you understand that he's uh, very much in touch with nature, that's about where it ends as far as his appeal. You know, there's not his general personalities. Otherwise, he's almost seemed like a British Puritan stuck as a hunter in the wilds, which is like, wait, what? That doesn't quite cut it. And I think he was, you know, Cooper's own projection about sort of the noble savage type of ideal and how he mixed it with his own Christian morality and... And it was written in the 1820s, or when, when was he writing these novels? You know what? Let's look it up real quick. Uh, last of the Mohicans was written in... Uh, do, 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 do. Let's... 1826. Gotcha. So it was... There were people still alive who could be primary sources for him, but, I mean, for him, it was relatively recent history, but he still... Oh, kind of a world apart. I mean, obviously, 75 years back then would be like 750 years now in terms of uh, sure. pro- how much progress had gone by. But I, so I guess I was curious to see what period details he would include that you wouldn't get from a contemporary filmmaker, a contemporary storyteller. But it seems like the 1936 film is what Michael Mann responded to most. He saw a 16-millimeter yeah. uh, print of it and was enthralled. And it's funny how I watched it for the first time in preparation for this episode. The DNA of the storyline, so much of it is there, and so many of the lines are there. But it's a great example of how you can inject so much poetry and so much visual storytelling yeah. and so much emotion that's just not there. And I love watching films from the 30s. It's my, probably my second favorite decade of the of filmmaking behind the 70s. But there's like little things like the ending when Hawkeye enlists in the British Army. I'm like, whoa, that, that yeah. doesn't work for me, for the character yeah. at all. I, I need the line when Daniel Day-Lewis is like, yeah, I'm not your scout and I'm sure as hell not part of your damn militia. Heading west to Kentucky. There is a war on. How is it you are heading west? Well, we kind of face to the north and real sudden like turn left. I thought all our colonial scouts were in the militia. The militia is fighting the French in the north. I ain't your scout. You sure ain't no damn militia. Yeah, that was brilliant. Yeah, I agree. I remember watching that movie, the 1930s version, uh, when I was a kid. But that goes so far back that I have very hazy memories of it. But Yeah, if you want to see Bruce Cabot from King Kong as Magua, he's, there he is. But I prefer West Duty. Yeah, he, West Duty is, is, is awesome. He's such a good actor that way. He plays it really well. And that's another thing about characters. That, you know, Not only Hawkeye is a great character that emerges as a... Uh, not as a stereotype like in the book, but as a more um, well-rounded character. But even the villain of the story, even Magua, comes across as some guy that, you know, you could do a whole movie from Magua's standpoint. Yeah, he's the hero of his own story, and I don't yeah. really consider him a villain. He's scary, but he's, he's, scary. Got a, he's got a lot of justification for how he feels. Yeah, 
And I think that's a great thing that they do, that they don't just do this uh, bad uh, Euron kind of like, he's the bad guy in the story, so he's going to be evil all along. They give him a backstory that if you really stop and think about it, you sympathize with the guy. You are kind of agree with his choices. You see like, yeah, I kind of, okay, digging somebody's heart out of their chest and eating it, maybe a tiny bit much. Talking it, trash before you do it. <laughs> whatever, I do see the point. He, he had his reasons. <laughs> but also when you look at Magua, and like, when he gives his lecture at the end to, uh, to the Hurons and he's talking about how they need to ad- adapt the ways of the Europeans and become traitors and ex- exploit other people and conquer and basically act like Europeans, while it's frowned upon from Hawkeye's point of view, it makes you think, what if in an alternate history you had had more indigenous people adopting that frame of mind? It could have completely altered the trajectory of, of, of these cultures if they had adapted to the changing times as opposed to allowing themselves to be rendered extinct or pushing west. Well, and I think that's also a great point in terms of the complexity of the time. Because very often we look at some at the past and we look for heroes and villains. And for the matter, even in the present, sometimes you look at complex choices and you're like, clearly this choice is the good one and this one is the bad one. And most of the time it's not that easy because you can clearly make a very good argument for both sides in that one. You know, when on one end you have the old Euron leader who says you're going to become... It's not who we are. This is like a crappy way to live. This is terrible. This is what are you going to do? Start exploiting everything and everyone around you is like that clearly doesn't sound very good. And there are very good reasons why you would say, yeah, that's not the way to go. You want to keep a different frame of mind. You want to keep a different way of life. At the same time, from a practical standpoint, you can say, look, we're getting our ass kicked by Europeans coming in. We should probably learn some of the stuff that they do and be able to use those tools so that we stop getting our asses kicked by them. They both make sense, you know, and then it becomes a balancing act of how far you go in one direction where you essentially lose your soul in order to achieve some power versus how much in the name of being uh, true and pure you just give up on reality because those ways don't work. And so it becomes... An interest, rather than having these two polar opposites, it becomes an interesting dialogue made based on balance more than uh, than a you are right, I'm wrong kind of thing or vice versa. And um, and I like that because I think that captures the reality of history and the reality of life ultimately a whole lot. You know, rarely things are a hundred and zero. Even in the cases where you can think, think about the worst people in history there's usually you can zero in on at least one thing that you're like, okay, maybe I completely disagree with how they answer that question. But this was a legitimate problem that maybe nobody at the time had a good answer for. Otherwise, there wouldn't have been an appeal for this guy who then becomes a monster and so on. It's because he's providing an answer to a real problem that people are facing. The answer may be atrocious, but the issue doesn't go away just because you say that that guy's answer is terrible. Yeah, I mean, know? they say his heart has become twisted but he has found a way to exploit the current conditions to his advantage where he's become a powerful war leader. And I love the way they introduce him. Dante Spinotti, who's brilliant director of photography, there's a scene where um, Duncan is reporting to, um, oh, I can't remember the name of uh, his higher up, but it's all daylight. And the whole movie is shot by daylight and or firelight. But back in the shadows of this room, you can just barely discern the figure 
of a Native American, and as it turns out, it is Magua. But I just love mm-hmm. how he's there, just in the mix, just observing, yeah. taking it all in. And like when he has his first confrontation with Duncan about, you know, putting down his tomahawk to feed the women's laziness, and then he says, Magua understands English very well. Alice, can we rest him? Absolutely. Do that. Scout! We must stop soon. Women are tired. Not here. Two leagues. Better water. We stop there. No, stop in the glade just ahead. When the ladies are rested, we will proceed. Do you understand? Magua running around us. He's running around us. He's running around us. Excuse me, what did you say? Magua said, I understand English very well. He just, he's got the most interesting arc and so many interesting motivations. And of course, brilliant, brilliantly portrayed by Wes Duty. And I find that as time goes by, as passionate and as moving and as inspiring as Daniel Day-Lewis is, it's maybe perhaps more interesting to study Wes Duty. Yeah, he's a, he's a great character. He's fascinating. And I like the fact that they made it a three-dimensional character rather than just leaving him as the, the bad guy of the story. Yeah, and little details like the tattoos on the side of his head. I was watching a documentary on YouTube about the making of, and my, Michael Mann, he would watch, he would look at old paintings from this period, like um, landscape paintings by people like Thomas Cole and people like that, and just little lines, like like the blue lines that are kind of etched on the side of Magua's head. Just all these little details, they all come together to create this much greater whole. But when I, I guess when we're talking about the sweep of this movie, we can't really discuss it without discussing the score. And without the score, this movie would be a very different thing. I am glad you brought that up because I think I'm realizing there are several of my favorite movies that they all have incredible soundtracks. And Last of Moicans is easily one of them because the soundtrack is so phenomenal i remember doing entire road trips where i would drive for days from uh, california through the midwest so you have like 30 hours of driving and something that i would be driving through these beautiful immense landscapes with the soundtracks of last of mohicans cranking and it's just such phenomenal music that you listen to it just as music not as a music for film but just as music that you would listen to anywhere. Same as, you know, we're mentioning Conan. I think like half of Conan is the soundtrack. Absolutely. Without the score, the movie would be diminished. (laughs) Dramatically. And same exact thing for Last of the Mohicans, right? The music is, is so good, it's hard to think of something that would be better fitting for a movie like that. Yeah, we all credit goes to Michael Mann's wife, who first heard this piece of music and when it was exposed to the composer, the two composers on the film, but I believe it was Trevor Jones who first heard it. And it basically they decided he wrote a kind of a counterpoint or a harmony to it. And Michael Mann said, all right, well, the harmony is going to be the main theme. Like what you see over the opening credits when you're seeing all the Blue Ridge mountains and that's the capture the beauty of North Carolina, AKA New York very, very well. But then the original tune is what you hear like at night in the fort when there, it's all by firelight and Hawkeye's looking for his lover and it's just like wow like this is this is sex music like it, it, it is it is on
I, I love both dearly. And um, yeah, I've heard them both countless times. But when I, the reason, one of the reasons I started crying yesterday is when uh, Madeline Stowe has that great line where she says, the whole world's on fire. She's embracing him through the cage and the music just explodes. Mm-hmm. And I, I just got to, I started laughing. I was like, I'm turning into the world's biggest softy that this moment can just affect me like that. But it, the music plays a huge part of it. Oh, I cry at everything. If you, I can take the crappiest movie in the universe. If it has a vaguely sentimental scene, I'll cry. What about Conan's prayer to Crumb? Conan, you know, you cried at everything. (laughs) (laughs) Or when Subodai says, he is Conan, Sumerian, he will not cry. So I cry for him. (laughs) It's just beautiful stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Jerry Lopez, incredible. But yeah, those ones, yeah, when you think about this soundtrack, like Conan, like Lord of the Rings, too, if you think about it, you know, phenomenal soundtrack. There are those movies that you remember as great movies, for sure, as fantastic movies. But you wonder, what would this movie be like with a crappy soundtrack? Would I still feel the same way? I don't know. Oh, speaking of music, I had an interesting moment with your podcast last night where I decided I was going to go to sleep listening to um, one, of, one of your episodes from The War for the Black Hills. And I took some melatonin because I wanted to get you know, a good yeah. deep night of sleep before, uh, before this recording. But you know, sometimes you take melatonin, you can have really vivid dreams and kind of hallucinate. And I came to at the end of the episode two when you have that Lakota song about the uh, Battle of Little Bighorn. And I thought that there were Lakotas in my room <laughs> beating drums and singing. But you want to talk about some bone chilling music. That song will send shivers right up your spine. Yep, that's an intense one. That's for sure. Absolutely. So let's talk action because I think this movie has astonishing action. I mean, the ending yep. scene is pure visual storytelling, but from a historian's point of view, what do you make of that first ambush where Magua walks back along the line, cracks one guy with a tomahawk, shoots another with a rifle, the Hurons invade or they attack. How long did it take the Europeans to adjust to those guerrilla tactics? I mean, one of my favorite scenes in Barry Lyndon is when you just have this army marching into certain death and they never even make it to the opposing line. They just get completely eliminated. You would think just out of a human survival instinct, the, the Brits, after a little while, would start to adapt. But clearly in this first battle scene in 1755, they just get completely slaughtered. I guess there are two things to mention regarding that scene. Uh, one, just from a choreography standpoint, I think that scene may seem less uh, radical today than it was in 1992. But back then, you didn't see choreography like this other than in martial art movies. You know, it's like such a very gritty, kind of brutal, but also beautiful choreography. Like the whole fight feels very, even to Hobbesley is not real because nobody hooks a tomahawk and spin 180 to stab you with a knife kind of thing. So of course it's Hollywood, but it has a very, it feels real. It feels very in your face. And in a way that most, most fight scenes at that time, you would have to go into some really good choreographers to get something like this. So that was intense because it happens very early in the movie and it kind of almost catches you by surprise by the, its greatness. Oh, yeah, Magua, he just nonchalantly <clears throat> walks to the back of the line and whap, whap. I mean, it's incredible. It really catches There's you. There's that where Magua suddenly is walking in the opposite direction and they're like, what are you doing? And you yeah. see the tomahawk and suddenly it slides in his hand as he's getting ready. It's powerful. Yeah. But uh, no, from regarding what you were saying, um, the other point on this is, uh, yeah, there's uh, one of, to me, one of the most interesting moments of the French and Indian War happens the year before the setting of The Last of the Mohicans. It happens in uh, 
when um, when you have the Braddock expedition. And um, <clears throat> actually, now that I think about it, let me look it up. I think it may be the same year instead. Braddock expedition. Um, it's either 54 or 55. So let me check it out because I don't want to tell you. Yeah, it was actually 55. It was in July of 55. So right around that same time where it's the first big battle of the French and Indian War. It's when uh, the British send the biggest army that they've ever had in North America. They send it to go crash this one strategic fort that whose possession was really what started in many ways the French and Indian War, because that's where the previous year there had been the fight with a young George Washington trying to stop the French from taking over the place and so on. And uh, the way when you research that battle, the Braddock expedition and its defeat is so exactly what you describe, because you have this massive British force that by all accounts should not lose. They are numerically and they are numerically superior. They are better armed. There's everything. And they are heading toward this French fort that has no chance in hell of surviving a siege by this fort. And so what they do is uh, a group of French, like almost with miraculous timing the day before, a native force arrived to reinforce them. And they decide to go out and meet the British in the forest, not to wait by the fort, because by there, the British are going to be way superior. They're going to try to ambush them in the forest. And off they go into the forest. And the way all primary sources describe it is that the forest suddenly explodes with these war cries from every direction. And within the British column, the need for adult diapers goes sky high in about <laughs> because Nobody had expected this to happen. Nobody had seen. And, you know, most of these guys came straight from England. They had no previous experience in North America. All they've heard about native tribes is purely kind of legend and terror and all these terrible things. They'll capture you. They'll torture you. They'll do this. They'll do that. So, so they are kind of psyched already. Never mind the fact that some natives in the day before, they would look for people who went peeing in the woods and they would murder them and leave their body to be found by the column. So, you know, there was the feeling that they were being watched, but tension had been rising and suddenly it explodes when they realize they are caught in this ambush. And that's where what you're referring to comes in, where the traditional British approach was you form battle lines, everybody got their guns and they only act on orders from their superior officers. So raise the rifle, aim, fire. And in the meantime, native and French guerrilla fighter, they just basically wait for the volley to pass. They hide behind trees, which is exactly what they show yeah, in the, the perfect the shot. They almost kind of nonchalantly without a care in the world, just get behind a log, wait for it to yep. go by, and then they go, they go right back to slaughtering the English. Exactly. Even because back then the guns were single shots so it's not like you could reload that quick so once you had one big volley now you're in trouble because there's a gap between the next moment when you can fire and so you have native and french snipers who hide behind trees wait for the volley to pass then take one shot kill one guy then they hide back they reload their rifle then they take another shot and kill another guy and of course the british officer being visually standing out because their uniforms were very bright so they make perfect <laughs> targets for all the snipers who essentially have a contest for who can kill the most officers in there 
And it's a complete disaster for the British force. And it's a disaster largely based on tactics that, you know, the tactics that work in an open battlefield in Europe do not work in the middle of the woods in North America. And, you know, eventually the British will get it, but it takes a while. takes a while. Yeah. And of course, one of the most, a place where I got misty, where I, but I didn't cry, but as this small little group is getting just completely just destroyed, suddenly... You've got our three heroes who arrive to save the day. And I think my favorite half second of choreography of the whole movie is where you see Daniel Day-Lewis fighting with a tomahawk and a knife at the same time, the way he's using them in conjunction with one another. And that's where all those months and months of training all all came to the front. And you just see Daniel Day-Lewis just hurled every ounce of himself into this part. But it's just the music kicks in. And yeah, I guess we should talk a little bit about the Mohicans... In the movie, since it is the last of the Mohicans, where you've got Chin Gachkuk, if I'm saying that correctly, Uncas, and of course you've got Hawkeye and Russell Means. For people don't know, he actually has some really interesting history prior to this movie, uh, when there's a big standoff with the FBI about 20 years prior. But from what little we know or can gather about the Mohicans, what do you think of the interpretation of the Mohicans in this film, since they're obviously the, the heart of the story? Well, let's mention a quick thing since you brought it up regarding Russell Means. That was very interesting to me to see Russell Means in a leading role. I mean, he's not the lead, but he's like basically second lead in the movie. Um, And then you have in a very small role, there's Dennis Banks, um, who's one of the natives who has a very quick speaking part when they get to the fort. And both of those guys were the leaders of the American Indian Movement, which was the biggest activist organizations of the 1970s for native people in North America. And the American Indian Movement had a wild story that make uh, the French and Indian War look, I mean, not diminished, but it looks not less intense. You know, those guys had some crazy events, 71 standoff at Wounded Knees, the longest occupation on U.S. soil in modern history. Uh, the government sent the police, the FBI, even the army was deployed to kind of negotiate between these native activists demanding for certain rights to be respected versus the government cracking on them. I mean, the whole story of Russell Mintz and Dennis Banks is pretty wild in itself. So it was a very interesting touch that they decided to cast both those guys in important role in these movies. It was um, <clears throat> such a transformation compared to the past when... You had, you know, white guys painted red doing uh, Bruce native. Cabot, yeah. <laughs> now, not only you had native guys, but you also had native guys who played a rather important role in modern Native American history. <clears throat> Sorry, apologies. Uh, I to clear my throat. Yeah, as far as the that particular, the story of the tribe specifically, the Mohicans. Now, of course, no, it's not quite as dramatic as uh, the movie make it sound. It's not two guys and one adopted one are the only ones left. But of course, there is a reality that particularly when you look at tribes on the East Coast or somewhere close to the East Coast, which is really where all of this stuff happens because the 13 colonies were all within a stone throw from the from the coast pretty much. The reality is that, you know, look at the map of U.S. today. Look at where most Native American reservations are. The vast majority are either in the West or Midwest. You know, you do find stuff in the East, but not that much. Yeah, like Vermont has one. I went to a wedding that was on an Indian reservation, and it's a big casino and that sort of thing, but they're rare. And, of course, Asheville, where a lot of this movie was shot by the Biltmore, 
there's a, a big and funny eight years after this, I was working on Hannibal as an assistant to producer, which was shot there. And of course, everybody still remembered the shooting of the last of uh, the Mohicans. But yeah, so they're they're here and there, but they're they're rare. And they are in, typically, with a couple of exceptions, they are really small reservations. And you're like, why that is? Well, because then there was longer for them to be colonized. There was longer for the sweeping push west to happen. So there was less of the, especially in the last period, sometimes treaties were signed because it's like, sure, we'll, you can keep this piece of land because we take everything else, so who cares? Early on, there wasn't that. There was just, let's take all of the land and, you know, okay, we'll give you this tiny dot here and there because we don't want to keep fighting. But so in that sense, there is a reality to, if not a complete genetic wipeout of a population like Last of the Mohicans seems to imply, at least a cultural wipeout of many tribes where you would be very hard pressed to find um, a lot of traditional culture surviving past the 1800s, let alone today. Uh, and that's just a reality. That's just the reality of colonization that a whole lot of tribes in the East got, if not ethnically wiped out, which sometimes it did happen where a tribe, I mean, maybe there would be descendants, but they are so few and far between that they don't really constitute a separate tribe anymore. They end up mixing with other tribes and sort of losing their specific identity. But definitely on a cultural level where so many people die in a short amount of time, there really there's no way to keep There's the that culture. great line where he says, uh, the white man came and night entered our future with him. Yep. And that's it's poetic and chilling and dark all at once. And that's the reality. Long blind. If you ain't come, look to you. And the new you are meant to some for the future. Not the concept, it's a poetic question. Our we can ask the question to three Avec les autres nations indiennes. Pas moi que les blancs, et aussi faux que les blancs. Would Magua use the ways of les Français and the Yengis? Would you? Yes! Would the Huron make his Algonquin brothers foolish with brandy and steal his lands to sell them for gold to the white man? Would Huron have greed for more land than a man can use? Would Huron fool Senegrin to take in all the furs of all the animals of the forest for beads and strong whiskey? Those are the ways of the Yengis and the Francais traders. And their masters in Europe infected with the sickness of greed. Magua's heart is twisted. He would make himself into what twisted him. I'm Nathaniel of the Yengis. Hawkeye, adopted son of Chingachkook of the Mohican people. Let the children of the dead Monroe and the Yengis officer go free. This belt, which is a record of the days of my father's people, speaks for my truth.
I mean, there were cases that definitely fit the definition of genocide. Most of them don't in a technical sense because there was no outright plan to wipe out everybody. But for all intents and purposes, the combination of diseases, land dispossession, war and everything else created, if not an outright genetic genocide, definitely a cultural one. And uh, then there are the cases where it was like the Pequot case could fit the bill from the 1600s. There's California in during the gold rush fits the bill as far as genocide go. But, you know, a lot of North America is not technically genocide. But again, arguing technicality when you have your whole culture and 90 percent of your population wiped out kind of, you know, doesn't really mean that. At that, at that point, you're, you're splitting, splitting hairs. and yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the thing is, so many people die because of diseases. So the arguments got to be made, well, this is not genocide because it's not just they don't die because somebody stabbed them. They die because of diseases. And that should certainly play a role. But of course, diseases don't operate on their own. If uh, diseases, while you are at peace and you have your land, is one story. Diseases were in the middle of warfare and you have your cornfields getting burned and you are low on food and you have to be on the run. Of course, the mortality rate goes even higher. So it's a combination of factors, you know. Was there any evidence to support that absolutely kick-ass weapon that Russell means wields in this movie where it's like a club and an axe and like a, a projectile weapon all in one i don't know what that thing is it looks straight out of like the hyborian age and it's absolutely incredible that's a great weapon what it is is what is referred to as a gun stock club and what it is is that as we mentioned earlier guns back then you shoot them once and then it takes forever to reload so one of the things that would happen for native people who got their hands on guns is that you would take your shot, but then your enemies are charging and they get too close for you to reload. So you grab that rifle, you flip it around, you grab it by the barrel and you use it as essentially as a, as a baseball club to whack somebody in the head. And they were quite pleased with the results. They were like, hmm, this design works really nice. Look at that. It's a great club. And so some people figure, you know what, why don't we make clubs like this? Let's just, if you notice, it has the shape of a rifle. Absolutely. Except the barrel, but like most of it is there. And so then they decided, yeah, this thing works really handy to crack somebody's skull. You know what, why don't we add some blades to it? So let's put a blade at the end of it. That makes it even deadlier. So there are a bunch, like if you look at uh, gunstock clubs, if you look at pictures, there's a whole bunch of examples spread throughout North America of this stuff. Just the club itself, the club with one blade. I saw a guy who was overdoing it a little. He had three blades attached to it. I mean, it makes mincemeat of Magua at the end. And the way you see his bones coming out of his elbow and the way it rips into pieces, it's one of the most vicious action scenes I've ever seen, where his body is completely rendered incapable of any further combat. And it has this just, you have this bone chilling face off where you have these two people staring across at each other. And you almost get a feeling that like the entire history of indigenous people at that time is all being compressed into this one moment two different points of view on their path forward but cinema is at its best for me when you can leave the screenplay behind and just tell the story with pictures and i think michael mann's greatest achievement as a filmmaker peaks and crescendos with this one moment where magua and uh ching i always mispronounce chin gotcha cook when they finally have their their face off it's just this that is as epic as it gets and there's not one word spoken for 
I don't know, 10 minutes of the movie there or something. There's that whole scene from when they leave the Euron village to the whole chase, to catching up with them, to the first duel with Uncas, and then uh, the younger sister jumping off the cliff, and then the, uh, Hawkeye and Chingakook catching up to them. You know, all of that. There's, I think they probably say two words the entire There's time. There's like though. screams of horror, like when yeah. uh, when um, when Korra sees that Alice has jumped. Yeah. And you like and now obviously when Uncas gets killed, Hawkeye reacts, but there's no dialogue. And that's yeah. what, what just really sells the entire scene. And just the music just keeps swelling and building and it's, it's just awe-inspiring. Yeah. That's amazing. It's it's a really special, just glorious experience from start to finish. Uh now when it comes to history, I'm sorry, I'm just while I've got a historian in front of me, I'm just going to pick your brain. When uh, one of my, I think one of the most interesting scenes is this negotiation between the French and the British in terms of giving over this fort and moving on. Is there any sort of evidence in history that the French at any point would say, "We're not going to take your weapons. We're not going to put you in a jail. Just promise to sail home." Uh, while I think it's a it's a brilliant scene, I'm always kind of skeptical as to whether or not it passes the smell test that the English should be given such generous terms to surrender their fort. Yeah, as far as I remember, that's exactly how it plays out. Like, that whole thing is based on a real story that happens. It's either 1755 or 56. Um, but yeah, that one was, it's a, it's a powerful one because it's a story that, yeah, does create a bit of a stain on the reputation of the French because they do make this deal. <clears throat> they forgot, however, to consult their native allies. They showed up, and they, they do a good job in the movies too, explain it because essentially what's happening there is that you know the french may make a peace because they care about capturing the fort because it's strategically important and so who cares if they let the british go with their arms if they don't have to fight for another two weeks and have more people die why not that works out but for many of the natives they came there to raid they came there to kill enemies they want their tomahawks to be red yeah they wanted scalps they were there for war they were there for for loot to justify the fact that they took weeks away from providing for their families they needed to come back home with something you know and so when they failed to consult them then and essentially the french decide okay we made the deal we made the peace bye now it's all great and they don't really bother to check what their native allies are doing. And that's when the native allies will start out with native allies. I mean, the way the movie makes it is a little more dramatic, but it will start out with some natives going in and essentially taking things that they want from people in the British colony leaving. And people, you know, not sure whether to resist or not resist or what to do. And eventually when they start resisting and stuff, then natives start killing a few people. And then kind of the panic kicks in, and then the whole massacre takes place. I mean, the way the massacre begins in the movie, one of the most badass moments I've ever seen in any movie ever, one Huron soldier comes hauling ass out of the woods by himself towards hundreds of British and just smacks the crap out of the guys. Like, oh my God, like just this one guy, like in a death charge, and then another comes, and it just keeps building and building. But that first charge, one of the most exhilarating moments all film. Yeah, no, it's phenomenal. I think it captured that feeling, what we were saying, the adult diaper needing moment when you are in the middle of this open field and you don't see anybody, you just hear from the forest this explosion of war cries. Yeah, that gets, uh, that can get a little scary. 
Yeah, even Hawkeye is kind of he he gets alert <laughs> when he starts hearing yeah. the cries from the woods. All right, well, as we start getting toward the end of our a lot of time, how come you haven't tackled the French Indian War yet on your show? I feel like it's got all the ingredients that people like you and Dan Carlin just absolutely love and adore, and I just feel like there's enough material here for like a a, a five parter. I think that's the problem. There's more than enough material. Is my problem? I badly want to uh, cover the French and Indian War. I think it's phenomenal. I'm fascinated with the time period. There are major events. It's hard to find a way to frame it that doesn't feel overwhelming, because there's so much happening. There are so many characters involved. I, I love your four parts. I mean, Joan of Arc, Conquest of Mexico. These are some of your your all time best, and they feel. I, I, as epic and grand as the subject demands. But I give you an example. Let's say I'm covering the Joan of Arc story. Well, there's one clear lead character. You gotcha. follow her. The narrative is simple. Even the Spaniards and the Mexica fighting with the conquest of Mexico, they are the same people. You know, there's the same Spanish force. You follow Cortes all the way. You follow the Mexica all the way. They are the same groups from beginning to end. There's a very clear narrative there. The French and Indian War is such a big theater with so many different people who don't necessarily even know what's going on on the other side of the French and Indian War that it's a little like it's easy if I were to do an episode on the Braddock expedition or the last of the Mohican thing, you know, the Fort William Henry thing. Easy. That can be done. I'm trying to think whether I have to give up my ambition of covering the whole thing because it's just way too much and it becomes a 10-part series that nobody want to listen to eventually, other than three nerds like me or you once that. Because, <laughs> you know, one thing I notice is that usually the longer my series go, the more I lose people along the way. But I like it when you circle back to a subject, like you had your two-parter on Gladiators, and you could have gone into Sex in Ancient Rome, but you but, left it alone, and then you come back years later, and you tackle Sex in Ancient Rome, and so you, you're able to make it bite-sized chunks. I kind of need to do that because I notice that people's attention span is great for an episode, for two, sometimes for three. Once you start hitting the four or five episodes, two hours each in a row, it starts dropping off. And again, it's not terrible, but it does happen. And never mind that it's already difficult for me to create those narratives, even more so. It's, so I'm really, you know, but yeah, you definitely touched an important point on the French and Indian War because it's one I badly want to cover you yeah know, i dm'd you i guess a week or so ago said oh which episodes of yours should i listen to prior to our recording he said ah oh, well i haven't tackled the shit i was like how is that yeah. even possible <laughs> yeah no i love it it's one that i want to do i haven't figured out how to do it because like do i just go in depth on a few things and then kind of gloss over on a whole bunch of stuff probably that's what i'm gonna do i'm gonna cover the beginning i'm gonna cover the first couple of years and then gloss over and touch on a few important things. Because if you do the whole thing, beginning to end, man, you never end. It's, it's an entire so, career. I guess it's like some historians devote their entire careers to the American Civil War. You could yeah. probably do the same thing with the French-Indian War or the Absolutely. Seven Years' War. Yeah, you could end up with a 15-episode series, two hours each, easy. And uh, I think I would get shot if I do that. That's just not... So, but yeah, I want to do it. And speaking of, I want to do it. Actually, you know, I was mentioning before we started that I, I just started the other day something I've wanted to do since I was 14, which is to write fiction. And so I started playing with this historical fiction about Caravaggio. If I get through that and I realize that the process is not as daunting, as awful as it sometimes may seem, 
the next thing I would want to write is set in the middle of the French and Indian wow. War. Wow. Uh, it's my version of Last of the Americans. No, really, Last of the Americans. It's not what that you can do. I mean, Brady Sinellis, he's been doing this with his podcast where he reads chapters from his upcoming book as he goes. Yeah. You could almost turn your rough drafts of certain chapters into episodes. That way you're killing two birds with one stone. Right, right, right. right. Yeah, that could be fun. But yeah, that would be you know my long-term plan. Write a Caravaggio novel. Write a French and Indian War novel. That's my fiction goal for the next uh, who knows how long it takes. Well, I will hungrily devour it. Well, any final comments about the film or scenes you want to call attention to? Because somehow we've managed to make it this far without mentioning just the opening scene of them running through the woods, hunting, and the way you're seeing them work as a team and throwing rifles to each other. It's some of the most exhilarating stuff I've ever seen. And once again, not a word of dialogue. And I think that's also, yeah, not a word of dialogue. And it's... It does a phenomenal job of capturing the feeling of, uh, without over-romanticizing it, because many people do that way too much, without over-romanticizing it, but really capturing the connection between the humans involved and nature. And how these guys are really, to a large degree, a part of nature. Nature is not, the wilderness is not something out there, away from home. The wilderness is home. They are, you know, wherever you make camp is home at that point. These are, they are living as nomadic hunters. So they are not in one place at any one time. And nature emerges as a key character in the whole story. It's like the backdrop for everything, but more than the backdrop is really just alive and you feel it. And it's, uh, uh, I can't think of too many movies have done such a good job of making nature both appealing because it's so beautiful and the real and gritty and so i love that part of the movie that's another thing another layer of it all that i deeply appreciate and seeing it through madeline stowe's eyes where initially she's horrified but then she confesses that nothing's ever been more stirring to her blood and yeah just i can't there's only one moment in the entire movie that i don't like and that's there's a, a a bad special effects shot of the waterfall before they go underneath it to hide. And it always kind of throws me off that they would have this one insert that feels like it doesn't match the rest. But otherwise, I think it's, in many ways, a perfect movie. I love the cast. I love the writing. I love the music. I love the photography. I love everything about it. And the fact that it's loosely based on this pretty forgettable, innocuous film from the 30s is all the more strange to me. <laughs> but I'm, I'm thrilled that Michael Mann decided to take such an obsessive interest in this random old movie starring Randolph Scott. I and mean, I love Randolph Scott, but I prefer like his Bud Bedecker westerns and things like that. But it stands alone for me when it comes to historical epics. And also shows it doesn't have to be three hours. I love a three-hour film like Lawrence of Arabia, but sure. you can make a historical epic in two hours, no problem. Yeah, I think also that's interesting how Hollywood works in cycles. Because if you notice, there's a whole list of Native American themed movies that are all from the early part of the 1990s. Yeah, Dances with Wolves and Geronimo and a couple of them, yeah. Well, Dances with Wolves, right? Yeah. Dances with Wolves, we, nobody wanted to invest movies in Native stuff. They hadn't done big Westerns in a long time. Dances with Wolves hit big. Hollywood execs who until the day before would have said, a movie about Indians? Hell no, we're not touching that. Suddenly are like, oh, wait, natives are cool, I guess. People like it. Let's make 52 movies about natives in the next five years. <laughs> and that's what happens, right? They have, uh, there's this heyday when they make Last of the Mohicans. They make Thunderheart. They make Pocahontas, of course. They make, 
you know, there's a culminating with uh, smoke signals, which was kind of a first mainstream. Yeah, I think that was like 1999. So that comes at the end of the cycle. At the end of the cycle. And it's entirely made. Uh, I mean, not entirely, entirely, but, you know, all the key roles from director to actors to everybody being native made. So unlike being a movie that's like about natives is also native made. But yeah, there's that cycle on the 1990s that's like a golden era of cinema about native themes. And then, as always, it happens in Hollywood, when the cycle dies, then nobody wants to touch it again. And now it's one of the things that to try to make a movie about natives today in a mainstream kind of way, yeah, good luck with that. Yeah, it's so you'd be tap dancing across an entire field of laser beams, and it, it would be a challenge, but... I think if you get the right actors like Wes Studi and Russell Means and those types of people involved, then it becomes more interesting or more Hollywood and politics right now are in a very strange dance. And so they tend to avoid controversy of any kind and just focus on the most kind of bland, global, kind of easy to digest escapist entertainment. And they're not interested in making complex epics right now. Yeah, and also the native role is tricky. It goes back to pre-1990s, so where Hollywood execs are like, uh, you know, period pieces cost a lot, and Native Americans, come on, they are 1% of the population of the U.S., who's going to want to watch a movie about it? I mean, which, what I would love to see them do, there's this comic series by Jason Aaron called Scout, which is about a Native American um, uh, reservation and a casino, and it basically it's, it's Sopranos, but with Native Americans. They should make like a Netflix show or an HBO show out of Scalped and it's, you know, modern day and it's, yep. it deals with all the gritty realities of being a Native American today. And I feel like that's how you crack it open as opposed to going period. Yeah, I think it's like once somebody does it and if it's successful, then same thing. It's going to open a new cycle. Yeah. But until that happens, I mean, I had uh, not that long ago, I had um, a screenplay ready to roll. I had the producer of 300 in it. Uh, I had Oliver Stone wanting to direct. I had Ben Foster wanting to star in it. Everything is lined up. Still didn't go. Because wow. he was on the scene where he was like, ah, period, natives. Uh, looks good. We like it, but scary. Yeah. Uh, like, eh, People get know. very cautious. Well, as we start drifting toward the uh, the end of the show, I guess before I, these questions, they're not really that serious. They're just uh, kind of fun, just to kind of pull out your, your geeky side. But before I get to my, my questions, where can people find your show? Where can people find your social media? What's the best way for people to get up to speed on everything that you're up to as a storyteller and historian, apart from enrolling in one of your classes? <laughs> so... I've, um, let's see, I host two podcasts, uh, The Drunken Taoist, which is more of a chatty, it's kind of hard to define because each episode is sort of different from the next. Sometimes there are guests, sometimes there are. what's best in life. And of course, Conan already gave us the answer. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And uh, whereas History on Fire is more straightforward in the sense that you know exactly what to expect. I'm going to take a particular topic in history, do a really deep dive on it and tell you the story. Uh, straight up it can be one episode two episode three each episode is roughly anywhere from like 75 minutes to two and a half hours something like that anywhere in there and sometimes there are multiple episodes and you know my goal is to tell it where we started from right as an epic it's uh, it needs to be accurate history i'm not making it up it needs to all be very fact checked in details but at the same time it needs to feel like you're watching game of thrones kind of thing and honestly, it's not much of a stretch. You just need to tell it in a good way because real history is crazy. There's so much wild stuff happening. 
And as I mentioned, you know, Drunk and Taoist is everything is free on iTunes and other major podcast platforms. Um, History on Fire, there's about 50 episodes that are free and then maybe another 20 that are behind the paywall. So if you just want to start checking it out, there's plenty of free material before you even have to think about paywall or not. Yeah, the first one that I heard was the 10,000. I was like, all right, I'm in. This is, I mean, the moment you hear the Ennio Morricone music from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, like, okay, yeah. this, is, this is someone who gets uh, where I'm coming from and knows what kind of stories I like to be exposed to. And that perfectly sets the tone for everything to come. That was I was very happy to find out that licensing the music was way cheaper than I thought. You know, most podcasts tend to steal the music because nobody cares. But I was like, ah, it's one know. episode at a time. They don't mind. But for you, it's every episode. This yeah, is yeah, an astonishing theme that kind of defines that. the so show. So I had to go the legal way, and uh, and I was pretty happy that they were very easy about the deal. It wasn't too expensive. So I was like, yes, that adds so much that it's totally worth it. Absolutely. All right, so just a few quick nerdy questions just as a fan of your show now. As somebody who likes science fiction and fantasy, I've devoted way too much of my life to studying fake histories that don't exist, like maps sure. for worlds that don't exist and so on and so forth. A, will you ever do episodes about imaginary histories cooked up by an author? And if so, what is your favorite fictional history that's been cooked up by a science fiction or fantasy writer that you respond to as a historian – that you might consider tackling I down the road? The closest I've done to that, I've done one episode on Game of Thrones. Um, and you know, we we had a dialogue on that one, and it was a fun episode where we kind of discussed the similarities and difference between Game of Thrones and history. So it's not exactly a taking the Game of Thrones word and break it down as history, but it was, you know, a specific story here and there. Oh, this one, he took it from this episode from 1455. This one is clearly inspired by... So that was kind of easy and fun to do. Um, probably, I'm guessing not, even though I like the i like that topic i like because i try to keep history on fire as as much straight up history as possible even the game of thrones once had the justification of being i'm gonna tell you real historical events and how you may have seen them in game of thrones how they were inspired by kind of thing um as far as cosmology slash worldview of it all i think one of one of the ones that's easiest to jump in because it's not really that made up is the um, is the Robert E. Howard Conan series because that word, I mean, he's imagining this, you know, pre-Atlantis, pre-catastrophe kind of thing. And then uh, it's almost as a Graham Hancock vibe of like this cycle of creation of civilization, collapse of civilization, rising from the ashes kind of thing. And uh, but then, you know, the, the world that he creates is very much a fictionalized version of our real history. Between the time when the oceans drank Atlantis and the rise of the sons of Arius, there was an age undreamed of. And on to this Conan destined to bear the jeweled crown of Aquilonia upon a troubled brow. It is I, his chronicler, who alone can tell thee of his saga. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. 
I think you look at the map, it's basically the world as we know it, kind of compacted, kind of, you know, you recognize many of the populations with mythological names as something more or less inspired by real stuff. So that's one that I find kind of bridge, bridges the gap between real history and fantasy the closest. Because one thing I really responded to in one of your recent episodes, or when I was, I was revisiting the War for the Black Hills, when you described it as the long defeat, which yep. of course is a line from Tolkien, which Galadriel yep. says to Frodo about the three different ages where they've been in Middle Earth fighting yep. this losing battle against Morgoth and then against Sauron. And the way that you were able to contextualize something from American history from the 1800s and invite in a giant Tolkien nerd like myself, yep. I was like, this guy, he's like, you were grown in a lab to tell stories and in a way that <laughs> appealed to my interest. And so, yeah, I would recommend at some point, yeah, the Silmarillion for me is probably my favorite example we we're talking about where it's written like a history book but it's right. not, it starts out as mythology, becomes history, and I just uh, I think I've read it four times now. I can I can never get enough of it, and it's just I think it stands alone when it comes to imaginary histories. But George R. R. Martin, his book uh, Fire and Blood, which is like the first half of the history of Targaryens, that's a pretty goddamn good read as well. I'm gonna show you. Well, it, this doesn't tell people who are listening to the podcast, but for the watching part, I'm gonna show you my. Early, this was an Italian edition of Lord of the Rings, kind oh, of holy. Wow. Well thumbed, brown with age. But the interesting part is this: that they had this gigantic map that comes out of the book, where it's like this size, and you have the entire Middle Earth thing that emerges out. Be careful, because I can tell the corners are already frayed, and it's it's gonna come apart. Uh, definitely, but it's uh, I remember spending ungodly amounts of time watching the map following the adventures who was doing what where in very nerdy fashion yeah I well just talking being a professor of anglo-saxon bringing in his knowledge of languages and history and the way he and he went i guess most people just write a story from beginning to end but he came at it from such a different perspective he almost needed a story with which he could justify inventing all these languages and histories and yep. it's such a remarkable achievement so back to my question so while we're in the world of fantasy from your point of view as a conan fan mm -hmm. what is the answer to the riddle of steel the riddle of steel <laughs> yeah the riddle of steel is some serious statements regarding power right it has this very it's not immoral in the sense that it's not um it's pre-moral. There is no against morality. It's that it's in a universe in which morality really doesn't play a role, and it's about power, right? It's about who wields the best steel wins the game. And that's the story there. There's no attempt to try to spin it in a, you have to be a good person, a bad person, you know, good or evil don't even enter the arena at all. It's about Somebody wins, somebody loses. About somebody two standing against many. Yeah, somebody has the power, somebody does not. End of story, you know. And it's, uh, yeah, it's in, in fact, so much of that is based on, uh, there's a lot of Nietzsche, clearly. Not only the opening quote of Conan the Barbarian is Nietzsche, but there's also, you know, there's a lot of Nietzsche's philosophy in it. And you can see it show up in the, in the movie quite a bit. All right, uh... I've always wanted to join a cult, but I'd probably only do it if someone like you would lead it. Have you ever considered starting just like a, a movement of some kind that uh, 
incorporates martial arts and history and mythology and philosophy all kind of stirred into one. I feel like you almost have like an unofficial cult as is just amongst your, your listeners of the show. But I'm obviously only being half serious, but Thulsa Doom, he has a very powerful following. And in your own way, I feel like you're kind of following in Thulsa Doom's footsteps in a much yeah. more kind and benevolent way. <laughs> Unfortunately, when you watch Conan when you're eight, you just want to chop off the head of the cult leader. It just doesn't, it has this very individualistic, anarchist vibe to it that doesn't lead very well to create cult-like following, you know? Because <laughs> at yeah. the end, uh, you know, that's the problem. You don't build a movement around individuality. You don't build a movement around nuance. Big, large-scale movements are, are built around dogmas, really. They are built around, we wear these colors, we believe these things. We are, they, are, they tend to be very rigid by nature. Because why? Because they give you a very specific identity when many people need. Unfortunately, I tend to view identity as a prison more than as uh, something that's good for you. Because to me, at the end of the day, life is a, is a dancing act, is a balancing act, is a constant tweaking and adapting and modifying things to what's needed right now, which is the exact opposite of what dogmas do. Dogmas have the tendency to reassure you by giving you something stable. The problem with that is that stability does not respond to the fact that life is constantly changing. So you're trying to apply one model that may work in one context in all other contexts when it really doesn't fit. So I'm sort of by nature not built for that game because it's so, I feel that real to be a true human being, you need to be constantly smelling the air, to be constantly ready to adapt a little bit, to modify your stances, to shift your balance in the stances you take, in the attitudes, in the energy. And again, that's completely the opposite of what any mass movement does. Well, final question and a serious one. I love how you're a Renaissance man, and as opposed to some historians who have one topic they focus on, you focus on many. What's your biggest blind spot that you wish to attack as an historian where like, I feel like exploring fresh frontiers is a great way to keep your interest in a subject alive? Do you have a glaring blind spot? Like, I've waited my whole life, but eventually I'm going to come around and I'm going to get invested in X. I mean, there's something that I don't even know how to start because when it comes to, if you look at even most history podcasts out there or most books out there, if you go into a history section, there's so little written or produced or created about African history that it's not even funny. There's just so little. Now, some of it I understand there are problems with sources that, you know, you cannot make history if you don't have accurate primary sources. And for a bunch of African history, we don't. But that clearly there's also become self-fulfilling prophecy where there's, oh, it's harder. There haven't been 52 books written about it, so I'm not going to go look into it. And I got to say, I fall into that department because I just, it's not that I don't want to cover it, it's that I find it really hard. You know, just when I have to, I had people who say, hey, why don't you do something about African history? I'm like, love to. What do you suggest? Uh, yeah, it's like Egypt or, yeah, I mean. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, Shaka Zulu, great, okay, we, maybe we can do that one. But then what? You know, it's like, and they're just less stuff out there plain and simple, at least in the English language. And so that complicates things. And yet it's a little disconcerting when you consider it's the history of an entire continent and not a small one either. 
and there's so little discussed about it, I think that is an issue. Because, you know, I've done episodes about pretty much every continent other than Australia and Africa, you know. And, uh, and in both cases, I feel, yeah, that would be a good thing to fix. Because, yeah, the Americas up and down, great. Europe up and down, great. Asia, great. There's more to it, you know. There's That's not where the world ends. And so I feel that that is something that I've been uh, weak on. Fair enough. Well, Daniele Boyelli, it's been an honor. It's been a pleasure and a privilege getting to listen to you, but it, just to get to talk to you, that has been just a, uh, a unique pleasure. So thank you so much for coming on Wrong Real, discussing this amazing movie. And hopefully maybe down the road I can seduce you into coming back to discussing something in the realm of Robert E. Howard, J.R.R. Tolkien, George R. R. Martin, because I am a fantasy junkie. And where fantasy and history collide, that could be the uh, subject of an interesting episode. Absolutely. I mean, I so much of my ideas regarding fiction came from reading that. So much of that stuff is just how I was uh, formed in many ways. So, yeah, love to chat about it. Well, I'm dying to check out your material on Caravaggio, but for now I'll content myself with looking at some of the paintings and re-listening to your episode on him. But we hope you all have enjoyed this episode. Definitely check out History on Fire. And definitely, if you're living in Southern California, consider enrolling in some of Mr. Bialy's classes. He teaches uh, You teach at two universities, correct? Uh, Long Beach as well as Santa Monica? or? Yeah, I've always been Santa Monica and uh, Santa Monica College and Cal State Long Beach. And uh, recently I started teaching a few courses at Saddleback College uh, because, I mean, it's all online. So I don't have to actually physically go to Orange County because otherwise I would be driving all over the place. But, yeah, that's those are the ones I've been doing. Excellent. Well, if you enjoyed this podcast, remember to leave a rating and review. And if you want to talk more, you can find me on Twitter at Colbrex. And you can find Danielli. Is it at Dboyelli? Yeah, so it's uh, yeah at the first initial of my first name, so the letter D, uh, and then uh, Bolelli, which is spelled B-O-L-E-L-L-I. Beautiful. Well, I hope you enjoyed the episode, but more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards. It ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow. <laughs>